0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome, everybody, to episode 40 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, uh, Education Manager Jeff Macha. Uh, joining me today, a group of our regulars and a couple special guests. So, going down my list quick, I have uh, Chief Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Hey, everybody. Uh, Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Growley. Dr. Growey, welcome. Hey. And for our list of special guests uh, joining us for discussion today, uh, hailing from the Greendale Fire Department, I have Firefighter Paramedic uh, Jim Hins. Jim, welcome. Hello. Uh, Firefighter Paramedic Connor Reedsburg. Connor, welcome. Hello. And Firefighter Paramedic Tim Couliard. Tim, welcome. Hello. I thank everybody for joining us today, especially our special guests from the fire department. Uh, We will dive into a discussion on airway management here in just a moment. But as per usual, we'll go through some updates. So system updates, anything from Dan? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I'll be
1: real quick here. Um, The big message today is happy birthday to the Milwaukee County EMS system. For those who don't know, we just turned 50 years old only a short few days ago here. Um, so wanted to celebrate that big milestone. Uh, I think a lot of folks don't realize how young of a career field that EMS really is in the United States. Um, when you look at other professions such as um, doctors and nurses, um, EMS just has really uh, only been around since the 70s. So I want to celebrate that. We're a busy system here locally. We see over 112,000 patient encounters a year. We see a lot. We do a lot. Uh, and uh, you guys do some great work in the field. Um, also wanted to, to mention that we are still planning a celebration to celebrate this milestone. Uh, we're probably looking for a little bit warmer nicer weather next year. Um, and that will give us, you know, several months here to plan out uh, a nice event. Uh, but one thing that we need help with is designing a system patch. So we're looking to the field providers. If anyone has artistic skills that you want to put together a design for a patch, we would love to see any mock-ups that you guys can provide. And then also, I've been starting to kind of talk a little bit more about this with some of my colleagues, uh, but really about where the start of EMS came from. Um, there's a story out there called the Freedom House Ambulance. If you have not heard of it, I would really highly recommend you take a chance uh, to look at that and and learn about how EMS really started from the street level uh, in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Uh, there's some really interesting stories there, so just wanted to put that out there as well.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, And then a message from Medical Direction, Dr. Weston.
2: All right. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you, everyone, for joining. I'm going to echo Dan a little bit here because I also want to just take a moment to call out and celebrate uh, the 50 years of EMS in Milwaukee County. So uh, as Dan talked about 50 years ago, November 2023, uh, the EMS system, then a collaboration between the Medical College of Wisconsin uh, and initially the West Allis Fire Department, uh, was started. And that evolved into the system, which we have today, and the continued partnership between the Medical College, Milwaukee County, and each of our 14 fire departments. Uh, and part of that partnership is providing outstanding, continuing education. And this podcast is a great example of our work to do that. Uh, in this podcast, this episode in particular, is going to take us in a little bit of a different structure than what you might be used to with our podcast. We're trying to keep things fresh and engage you, uh, our EMS clinicians, in our education. So we're going to talk through a really interesting and really challenging case uh, involving some airway troubles and a cricothyrotomy decision. So I don't want to give too much away. Uh, I'll hand it back to you, Jeff, and others to get us into the details of the case. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you, Dr. Weston. And without further ado, and to not steal any thunder, I will turn it over to Dr. Grawe and our illustrious firefighter paramedics. Take it away, gentlemen.
3: Great. So um, as I, you know, had sent a couple other messages that we've kind of been sending out, we're really trying to focus education on, on things that people are really encountering in real life cases. And I think this case that this crew from Greendale had really highlights a lot of great learning points and a lot of awesome things to talk about regarding airway management, specifically a cricothyrotomy. You know, I think everybody learns a few things from the first time that they do a skill in real life. Uh, You know, no matter what the skill, think about the first time you might have intubated, done a bag valve mask, you know, even run a cardiac arrest. Um, And really, since crikes don't happen every day, um, our goal is to help you gain knowledge from this crew so that you're able to walk into your first crike with a lot of the experience that they gained from already doing one. So let's kind of get into it a little bit. So, again, I've got three great firefighter paramedics from uh, Greendale who are all on the case here. So why don't you guys start by just walking us through the case a little bit?
4: So... We were called to a CBRF for a diabetic issue. And when we got to the scene, we talked to the caregiver. And she said the resident's blood sugar was low and that it happens often and that he was in his bedroom. So I was the first to go into the bedroom where he was sitting on the floor with his back against the bed. And it was pretty evident immediately that he was PNB. So right away, I called out to the crew and said, this is going to be a PNB. get all the equipment. I laid them down and obviously started working the code, started CPR. And once the equipment was available, I had airway. And basically, we have a King Vision. So that is obviously our go-to tool. I got in and saw everything right away and I saw what looked like weird white substance in his airway that looked like it could have been like an infection or something didn't know what exactly it was until I pulled the blade out and I suddenly smelled peanut butter and I called to my crew and said did she give him a peanut butter sandwich and she confirmed that she did he had no evidence of having a peanut butter sandwich other than in his airway there was no sandwich sitting there there was nothing on his shirt nothing on his face so you know, we tried to suction it but then we tried the laryngoscope and the mcgill forceps and everything was just deteriorating in the mcgill forceps couldn't see the vocal cords uh, so we just kept trying and trying to get as much stuff out of there as we could And then I'll give it to Tim because Tim was in contact. This is probably, I would say, 10 minutes into it that there was some discussion of possibly doing a cricothotomy. And they had gotten a doc on the line. And I'll hand it over to Tim because he was in contact with the doc. Uh,
5: that That was Connor. I was the one who suggested the crike uh, just after we had been trying to dig the peanut, after Jim had tried to dig the peanut butter out for several minutes and we weren't getting anywhere. We knew that we needed an airway. So we suggested the crike. Connor contacted the doc and then Kyle, Lieutenant Kierzek, had pulled up the protocol right away and we went from there.
6: Yeah. So Dr. Growley here, I believe is actually the doctor that took the call on the other end of the radio. Um, basically we just ran through the form that OEM asks us to run through when we call in at PMB and at the end, when they ask for any you know, considerations, that's when we uh, kind of dropped the bomb on them that we were asking to do a crike. And, uh, it sounds like they're a little taken back by that, but, uh, they ended up telling us to do it. And that's when, uh, they started going through the protocol, setting everything up, and uh, they just stayed on the line with us, make sure that he uh, had any questions answered that we had through the process because obviously it's not something we do every day.
3: Yeah, so thanks for sharing all that. So, you know, definitely guys highlighted just the challenges of kind of what you saw, you know, Jim, when you went in there and uh, peanut butter. And I think one thing that you brought up that was a good point that I've seen with a lot of these cases when I talk to people about Crikes is this idea that you know it looks like we can get something with these McGills, but it just kind of disintegrates. You know, I think I've seen cases like this. The other one I've seen a couple times is like the meatball sandwich, you know, the meatball bomber that's the widowmaker that does not go well with the McGill forceps. So I think you guys had encountered that as kind of you know the big thing that what we're doing now isn't is not working. Um, and you called medical control for permission to do the crike. So I think that one thing that we had talked about when we had gone through this was that just to be clear with everybody, you don't actually need to call medical control to do a crike. Um, That's something that you guys should be empowered to make. But if I remember correctly, it was you guys, this was like a newer skill that we had had and you had thought that one of the lines in there in the the skill was actually about calling medical control for permission, correct?
6: Yeah. I mean, that just, to me, it seemed like a pretty invasive procedure that would have required that. I guess we didn't. technically look to see exactly if it was in there but in our eyes it was just best practice for a, a pretty severe procedure like that to get the approval of a doc and make sure that we weren't you know thinking out of line here
3: so what do you think you know i think that ultimately this is like a really hard decision that i think everyone would agree on you know and i think the thing that people talk about a lot around crikes is the hardest part of a crike is making the decision to actually do the crike so, you know, kind of talking about this a little bit, you know, what do you think are some of the barriers, either like mentally or physically, that that make it such a difficult decision to make to say, you know, we're going to pull the trigger and we're going to do the the crike on this patient?
4: You know, obviously, tension is running high. You have a patient laid down, you know, there is the pricoid gap there, the space that we had a couple of our paramedics look at it and think it was something else. And uh, we finally decided and and agreed that the space I had my finger on was the cricoid space. And yeah, so I mean, tension when Tim handed me our cricoid kit and obviously my heart's beating, you know, because now I have to cut into this patient's skin. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's quite, you know, when we practiced, we practiced on a rubber glove. You know, I mean, it's not true life at all. I know we had seen a video on it. And, you know, if you recall back when we actually did the skill, the video did show that there's going to be a lot of blood. And uh, I'm glad that my partners were forethinking and handed me a towel to put around his neck because I had no idea there would be that much blood So yeah, I mean that that was a mind block, not even knowing that there was maybe that much blood, but just to cut into a patient's skin, and you know it, like Connor said, it's quite invasive. You know, probably one of the most invasive skills we're going to ever have to do. Great,
3: yeah. Any other thoughts on the uh, the barriers that you know that make it harder to to make make a decision? decision?
5: I think I just agree with Jim. It's something that we don't practice very often, something we don't do on a day-to-day basis. So just thinking about it. And I know I thought about it for a little while before I had mentioned it, but then we were down to the wire where we knew we weren't getting an airway. So I definitely think next time the decision will definitely be made faster.
3: Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll let's get into some other thoughts about next time. I think that's a great transition. Uh, Connor, any other thoughts on, you know, barriers that you think exist?
6: Um, I think for me, the biggest barrier was just, I mean, I didn't have six months on the job here when we did that. And when I was in medic, you know, they said that was a once in a career thing. And I got 30 years left and my once in a career thing already happened. It's kind of crazy to think about, but I imagine that, you know, it's not going to be a once in a career thing for me. And it just happened. No.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, so I think those are all great points, you know, this idea that, and I've been very guilty of this, like messaging that a crike is a once in a career thing makes you think, is this the one time in my career that I'm going to need to do it? You know, it certainly is a, a very invasive procedure. You know, the fact that the other things that I've heard said that I think you guys also brought up when we talked is like the location, you know, we're doing this somewhere where we got an audience and a skill that we're not as comfortable with is like starting an IV or doing CPR. So I think there are a ton of barriers that uh, make this really difficult, you know? So, you know, I think a couple of these we can kind of talk about a little bit. You know, the first is the once in a career thing. I think I think that's something that I've definitely stopped educating paramedics on and saying that to anybody that I'm teaching this procedure to, because you shouldn't be thinking about, is this the one time, you know? Um, training is a good point. You know, we this is a rare skill. We should be training on it. So we just did some uh, local system correct training. And I think something else that people can think about is there's actually good data to say that visualization, besides hands on skills, is another good way to learn skills. So, you know, even if we're sitting there, it's not, it's not the, you know, as good as getting your hands on a cadaver, right? But if you're sitting there and just kind of walking through in your mind what a doing a crike might look like going through all the steps, all the prep, kind of what you might encounter, you know, Jim's comment about all the blood. That sort of mental rehearsal actually goes a long way. You know, that's how athletes prepare. If you watch the Blue Angels before they do a flight, they sit and they reenact the whole show out with sitting with their eyes closed in a conference room around on a table, you know. So I think that's another way that we can all practice these, uh, these high-acuity, low-occurrence uh, low skills, you know, um, offline as well. And then the other thing that I just want to point out is, you know, as part of your medical direction team is the support, you know, we're here to support you guys through this. Um, you know, we talk a lot about just culture and that applies to this too. You know, if you're in there and you think, you know what, this situation needs a crank, like, you know, we're here, we're here to, to back you up. Okay. So I I think you guys highlighted already a couple of like just good things that popped up. Isn't like, wow, this is what we were amazed. This is what we found. This is what we would do next time. So, so yeah, let's kind of circle back on that. So like, what do you think were the things that surprised you the most during the procedure or what were some lessons learned that that you'd do different next time, you know, you're opposed with this same case?
4: Yeah. So we, um, like I said, you know, cutting in, you know, first you get through the skin and then you get through the fat layer and that's when the blood started. And uh, again, be prepared with, you know, our kit gives us a little four by five little trauma pad that would not have been nearly enough to mitigate all the blood. So be prepared with a towel or something behind your patient's neck and don't feel embarrassed to check with your your team to confirm your landmarks because it's a, you know, a very rare thing to have to do. You know, don't be too proud to ask questions and, you know, with the rest of your team. And, you know, like Jeff I think mentioned or Doc mentioned you know, our our space was so limited. Uh, we we basically, as with most of our PNBs, it's never convenient in a convenient location. And a you know, we're not on a hospital bed with you know six feet on each side of us. So um, prepare your space the best you can, and you know, expect a lot of blood. I think Tim also has something with our instrument that we get a prepackaged CRITE kit be cautious of your lumen because we think ultimately we must have caught it with one of the tools we thought it was inflated uh, but we found out when we got him to the hospital that the the lumen was was punctured
5: yeah uh so to add on that we've decided to put a second CRITE kit in our bag and then talk about maybe just just an extra et tube on hand we didn't know at the time that the balloon was popped but we knew we weren't getting a good end title or good ventilation
3: yeah so I think you know you guys hit a couple the the barriers so looking at you know the bleeding and remember that the thyroid sits right you know in this by this cricothyroid membrane hence the name um, and that's a gland that just has a very rich blood supply. So that's kind of where that blood is coming from, either if you hit the thyroid or the arteries that you know, the small arteries that lead to that. So the bleeding is a is a real thing. And that's why a lot of this is a landmark procedure. And then certainly, you know, this is not the first correct case I heard the, you know, the other another one I was talking about with some other firefighters, they had the same issue where the balloon, you know, had popped. Um, but just like with you guys and uh this other crew they were still able to get ventilations in you know having issues with the ideal entitle, but still getting an entitle, still seeing chest rise and fall but what i really like is that you guys took this opportunity to look at how you can make the system better for you going forward you know so you took this as an opportunity to make a change that puts a second crank kit there talk about getting a second et tube there So that if you have the same situation again, whether it's you or some other crew that's on the ambulance that day, they're going to have the equipment to be able to manage that complication that comes up. you know. And I think that when we talk about these rare procedures or just anything in general, thinking about how we can create a system that works, a system that's inherently safe for our patients is kind of one of the biggest responsibilities that we have. So besides the little change that you made so that next time you're able to better manage this situation where the balloon doesn't, you know, go up, um, the other thing you talked about was this like pre-assembled crite kit that you guys have. So why don't you guys talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of how that plays into you know how this procedure went, as well as just like how your layout is with your uh, airway bag?
6: Yeah. So our, we carry a pre-assembled crite kit. It's got a, a scalpel. Um, a special ET tube that's shorter um, so that you're not having a huge ET tube um, hanging out of their neck uh, and you don't have to trim it down or anything like that. And then a a bougie so you can go into the um, airway and make sure that you're in the right area and feel those cricoid rings. Um, And then like Jim mentioned, that little piece of gauze that you know it's nice that they put it in there, but it's not gonna do much. And basically, by having it you know, all in that one pre-assembled kit, it kind of makes it a little easier in those high-stress situations that you know everything you need for this procedure is already there. You just have to grab that one thing. You're not going to a bunch of different places in the bag to try and pull different things out of. I don't have to grab the ET tube from this pocket and then the scalpel from this pocket and the bougie from another pocket. It's just all right there, sealed up. Uh, it's all got the same expiration date, obviously, when you're doing your monthly checks. Mm-hmm. And then for our bag setup, all of our airway stuff is all in one bag. So ET tubes, eye gels, King Vision, all of it's all in there. Um, so that I know that if I need an airway thing, that it's going to be in that bag.
3: Okay. Great. So yeah, I think those are a lot of good points. So, you know, while well, Greendale has a kit that they purchase pre-assembled, that doesn't necessarily need to be how you do it. You know, you could assemble uh, CRIK kits by themselves and put them together and and put them in your bag. You know, I think the other good thing that you guys highlighted is that it's kept in the airway bag and not on the rig. So if you're managing an airway, it's right there and nobody has to run and go get it. Or you don't have to think about how do I get this patient out to go get them to the CRIK kit. So um, all these things seem like small little pieces that might not seem important. But at the end of the day, when you're in the thick of it, literally with peanut butter, you know, in somebody's mouth, like these are the things that are going to make it easy for you to do your job and give you the best patient outcome instead of trying to find equipment, find other things from, you know, from different places. So, you know, so I think kind of at the end of this, you know, it'd be a great thing to sit, kind of talk to the people, the leadership, say your fire department and think about, hey, you know what, are we set up? Are we designed in a way that would make us successful to do this or do other procedures that we need to do? You know, and if not, what can we do to make us more successful? And it does not need to be uh, spending any, you know, additional money on anything. So I just want to emphasize that too. So the last thing that I that I want to talk about a little bit is this thing that uh, that Tim had brought up about when do we make the decision to do a cry you know so tim had said that in the next time we probably would make the decision to crack this patient a little earlier so uh tell me you know tell us a little bit more about that and uh what do you think is kind of that threshold where you say you know what i think i am going to crack this patient now
5: uh i think every case is a case by case thing um i just think that i know jim had really good intentions and in trying to get scoop the peanut butter out i just think that We should have realized as a crew a little sooner, a little faster, that the peanut butter wasn't coming out no matter what we did. We tried using saline to loosen it up, to suction it out. That wasn't working. Like Jim said, he used the McGills. He was trying to use the blade on the King Vision. That wasn't working. He tried using the ET tube. That wasn't working. So, again, I guess it's kind of a case-by-case thing depending on where you're at, but I definitely don't think we would have stayed and played as long as we did. We should have criked sooner. Yeah,
4: any other thoughts? No, I, I concur with that. You know, I looking back and moving forward, if it comes down to the point where you can't get it with a McGill force up because it's disintegrating and you can't get, you know, through the vocal cords, make that decision because an eye gel would not have worked in that case either. So trying to do it, you know, just put a blind airway in to, you know, try to make that work wouldn't have been successful. So it's, yeah, it's a learning curve. Once we couldn't do it, you know, now that we've done it, obviously, I think at least this crew is going to be a lot more confident to go ahead and move forward with it. And as far as anybody else out there listening, you know, it just, once you feel like it's, uh it's, it's going to be a no go, just, just go for it.
3: Yeah. And I think, you know, I'll tell you, even from my experience, managing airways, um, granted in a much easier environment in the emergency department than you guys are at, you know, I'm somebody, and I think we all are people that are, you know, high performers and, you know, you see this problem in front of you and you just want to take care of it. And it's easy to think I can solve this problem of the peanut butter in the airway, you know? Um, I can solve this foreign body. I can get around this swollen tongue. You know, I can do these things. I just need one more thing or let me try this other idea. Um, And, you know, I've I've been in that situation. You know, I've experienced that. And then next thing you know, it's been five minutes and it feels like it's been 10 seconds, you know? So the way that I try to convince myself to think about it personally is I think, you know what? Like I'm going to try this thing. And if this doesn't work, You know, I'm going to try the McGill forceps, you know, one time. If that doesn't work, do I have another thing, another option that I'm confident is going to get me success? Um, And if yes, I'll give that a shot. And if not, you know, then I just got to make the decision to do that. Cry, you know, and I love that you guys thought ahead about the eye gel, you know, hey, you know, because a lot of times it would have been very easy to say, all right, well, we tried these things, like, now we're just going to drop an eye gel and see if that sort of gets us where we need to be. But like you guys had highlighted, that would just not have worked. You know, that would have been a shovel for that peanut butter that would have just scooped it right up and probably put it right more, you know, into the airway. So these are not cases where supraglottic airways are the right airway for this right patient. So, you know, I, I just want to really give you guys so much credit for, for managing this airway, you know, and you guys made the decision to do the crike and you hit a couple, again, common roadblocks with bleeding. Um, You hit a roadblock that I've heard before of, you know, we somehow pierced the balloon on the, uh, on the ET tube, but you got the balloon in place. You were able to ventilate the patient, you know, and you got the procedure done successfully, you know, Um, and that's what matters. So, so yeah, any, any final thoughts from you guys about, about this case or anything else that you'd say to somebody else who might be kind of put in this situation where they, they think it might be time to pull the trigger on that crike?
5: I would just say if you're considering it, it probably needs to be done. Just go for it.
4: That's a good point. And uh, take out your kit, look at a video, and just prepare yourself mentally for it.
3: Great. Connor, any uh, any last thoughts from you?
6: I don't think so. Uh, special shout out to whoever was on Men 92 Don't remember the names of the guys, but just want to Shout them out for also being there, helping us out with the crike. I know they were right there looking for landmarks, looking up the protocols with us. Um, so thank you guys for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just doing it sooner and mentally preparing yourself. Like Tim and Jim said, they definitely hit the nail on the head.
3: Great. You know, some three big kind of talking points, teaching points for us to get away is like, how do we prepare our system, you know, our, our ambulance setup and design, how can we train on this, you know, even outside of kind of the tip, the usual simulation training that we have, how can we make sure that we're best prepared? Um, you know, second thinking about like the hardest barrier to this is making that decision to do a crike. And I think Tim put it really nicely. If you're thinking about it, it's probably time to do it or at least bust it out and start marking landmarks. So that in 10 seconds, when you're hundred percent sure that you're, uh, that you're ready to go. And then finally, just, you know, always trying to learn from anything that we do, especially our first procedure and, uh, you know, making sure that we can do always do better next time. You know, even the cases that go really, 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 really well, there's probably always something that we can learn. So I want to, again, just give one big, huge shout out to Tim, Jim, and Connor who are with us today you know, being kind of vulnerable with us about this case that we had so that, that you guys can can all be better in this system. So, you know, give love to them and these uh, evaluations that you guys are filling out on the podcast and we'll be sure to send the feedback their way. So um, I think you guys made a lot of decisions that other people make in similar situations and, and uh, you know, thanks for coming to talk to us all about this. I really appreciate it.
4: You're welcome. Thank you.
5: Thanks for having us.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Grawi. Thank you, gentlemen. We do really appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us about your adventures out there in Craigland. So uh, we look forward to seeing if there's anybody else out there that has a cool case or things they want to share with the rest of the county in this kind of format. So if you have any ideas, thoughts, questions, or comments, please feel free to reach out to us, emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks to the rest of the OEM team for joining us today. We'll see you next month. Stay safe.